0: Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I've had the opportunity to, to be with some of you throughout the course of this weekend. And, and I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, hearing your stories, hearing how God is using this church and this community. Um, I have the privilege of traveling all over the country and, and, and doing this kind of work with churches. And, and when I listen to them, I'm always deeply encouraged about the unique ways in which the people of God are responding to the call of God. And lives are being changed as a result. And I know that that is happening here. And I've heard witness and testimony to it happening. And so I celebrate that with you and praise God uh, for you and your faithfulness. Uh, It has been good. I've been up in this area for really about the last week. I was at, uh, I I also lead our graduate programs at Olivet. And so I was at a, a group of colleges, Hope and Calvin and Cornerstone, all week. And so I've been uh, drinking in the beauty of Michigan during the fall. It is a great state, though you you rained on me a little this week, Uh, but it has still been absolutely beautiful, and I will say this, y'all got some of the best coffee shops. I'm just saying. Like, I've been to a coffee factory, I've been to Aldea twice in two different towns, Uh, Lamangelo's in Holland, I mean, these are some good places. So, a little bit of beauty and some coffee, and I am a happy man, and so... Uh, And as as an Ohio guy, even in Michigan, uh, let us pray. Um, (laughs) I slipped in the Ohio thing there, by the way. Um, Right now, you're praying for me, not with me. I I get that. I get that. Uh, Father, you are so faithful to us, and we are so thankful for you. Um, This time that we're about to enter into, this preaching time, we recognize it as it's it's a miracle. And, And we say it's a miracle because... There's no other way to describe how we can reach back into this ancient text 2,000 years removed from us. As many as 3,000 in some parts. And we sort of pull that into the present and it means something to us today. And we recognize that's only as your spirit takes your word to meet your people to accomplish your purposes. And when all of that happens, we can only point and say that's the miracle of God. And so, Lord, I'm just going to pray that you would show up in this place. You are well acquainted with my inabilities, inadequacies, and deficiencies. So somehow, maybe today, maybe, I could be a conduit through which some really good news flows. So, Lord, have your way in this place and amongst us and with your people. And we'll be certain in the end to say that you alone are worthy of all the glory. And we'll ask these things in the name of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit as it was the beginning, is now, and will be forever, and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, I'm always a little humbled when I have an opportunity to tell her story, the her that I'm going to be talking about in just a moment. And I'm humbled because of ways in which I've probably mistold her story or unwittingly done her harm throughout the years of telling her story. Even in my attempts to correct my telling of her story, I've perpetuated some of the same mistakes along the way. Have you ever been in that place where you've heard someone's story told so many times the same way that even in your attempts to think of it differently, you keep returning back and back to the same way you've always heard it? I think I've done that unnecessarily to her throughout the years. I probably would have told you that she was resilient, maybe, if not a little helpless, I would have told you she was desperate, probably shrouded in shame, and I most definitely probably would have told you that she was looking for like a kind of white knight to ride in and rescue her from her shame-ridden life, which is what I imagined to have happened in this particular story. But then then I met her again for the first time months ago, and I couldn't get out of my head what I saw in her this time. See, we call her the woman at the well, as though any one episode is indicative of someone's entire story, and yet that's how we tell her story. And I think in the past, what I would have imagined of her was this woman who was, and if you don't know her story, I'm going to get to it, but I would have imagined her story as being this This woman who was meek and mild and sort of in the story, sheepishly shuffling to the well, trying to stay out of people's way and stumbling upon a stranger. That's how I would have, I think, told her story. But then when I met her again, I I saw something different. In fact, to be honest with you, I, I saw someone who looked a lot less like the meek and mild, sheepishly shuffling person towards the well and meeting the stranger, and more like the women that I had grown up around. Y'all know the women I've grown up around. They're the kind of women who uh, had the cigarette dangling from the corner of their mouth. The woman whose hair was in that sort of weird mixture between cheap perm and too much aqua net. Y'all know what I'm talking, you know her. Right? The the woman who um, on her best days looks at you and says, I'm not impressed. And on her worst says, Try me. Right? It's the woman who looks a lot less sheepish in her shuffling and more suspicious. And I don't know why it took me so long to arrive at this place with her because we come to know her story. And in coming to know her story, we come to realize that this was not her first rodeo. Like, she was a woman who had a lot of road up underneath her tires. This is a woman whose life had tested her time and time again. And so when she comes to a well, and she meets a stranger who we come to find out in the story should not have been there in the first place because a man of his stature, and this man is Jesus, of his stature, this good Jewish man, would not have been at this place doing what he was doing, and he certainly wouldn't have had the right intentions to talk to a woman like her. So instead of sheepishly shuffling to the well out of her shame, I think she strolls up, sees the stranger, and does this. Right, That's what I think she does, because she's suspicious. She's not going to wander all vulnerably as some damsel in distress into a situation like that. In fact, that's why she had come out at the time that she'd come out. See, the Bible says she came out in the middle of the day to draw water, which is, is a clue to the listener that something is different about her story. It's something that tells us that you don't go in the Middle East in the middle of the day to draw water. You go early in the morning or in the evening when it's cooler. And you certainly didn't go by yourself because if we follow the story of Scripture, there's a lot of stuff that happens at wells, some of which means that scoundrels hang out at wells. And so you always went with someone. So this woman who was going to the well in the middle of the day was doing so to avoid folk like him. And so now she's not... She's not looking for a rescuer. She's put out. He's in her way. And here's the deal. It doesn't even matter what his intentions were. They were good, but the burden of proof rests on his shoulders because she had lived the kind of life where she wasn't about to fall prey to a too-good-to-be-true story. Listen to a little bit of her story here. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, wait a minute, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. When he's asking her for a drink, her suspicion is peaked out, and I really believe it's in this moment, with her hand on her hip, that all she could think was, what's your agenda? Why are you here? Why now? And why me? I recently spent three years living in the heart of the city of Chicago. And uh, that was after about 20 years of of pastoral ministry. My wife and I had been called to serve at Olivet as a as a professor, and and I told them, I said, I can't just be a professor. I've got to be a practitioner. So they let me move into the city of Chicago as an urban missionary. Now, my wife and I had made several moves as as pastor, right? And here's a really cool thing about being a pastor: when you move, when you move as a pastor, there's people that are eager to receive you, like because they know you're coming and they're excited. The new pastor's here. And sure, that may last for like five minutes, but it's at least on the front end, right? Like, and you get there, and they're willing to help you unload your truck, and maybe there's some vegetables in the, the cupboards, you know, all of that stuff we do for new pastors. When you are someone moving into a city of 2.7 million, and you don't have a church waiting for you, no one cares. And so my wife and I, we arrived, and <laughs> we unpacked. And I knew immediately I had to go to the well. I had to go to the well. I had, I had to go, but, but, I, but I had to go to the places where people were, but I had to go incognito because no one was waiting for Jeff the pastor to arrive with eager receptivity because we live in a world that when we go as Christians to the places where people hang out, we meet people whose lives are marked by suspicion, by questioning, What's our intention? What's our motive? Y'all know what the wells are, right? See, the wells are where lives intersect. The wells are where people do business. The wells are where people's lives interact with one another, where lives bump up against one another. It's, It's really the crossroads of life. And I find it interesting that in this story, Jesus finds himself at a well with this woman. Now, At the risk of being a little blasphemous, I want to tell you a little part of this story that is kind of not true in the way that you might think it is. So just before Jesus arrives at the well, in verse 4, we're told something else. It says, Jesus had to go to Samaria. Did, Did you see those words, had to? Here's the risk of being blasphemous. That's not true. At least not in a geographic sense. So Jesus was in southern Israel at this time. And he wanted to go to northern Israel, and Samaria was like right in the middle. So when the Bible says he has to go through Samaria, it makes it seem like geographically he has to go through Samaria. But that's not true because there is a circuitous route that goes around Samaria that most Jews took to avoid Samaria because Samaria is not the place you want to go to that will take you around Samaria and to the place that you want to go to. So if Jesus had to go to Samaria, it had nothing to do with his geographic mandate. In fact, the Bible tells us there's only a couple times in the entire scriptures where Jesus has to do anything. And there's a common denominator in all of those. And that is that if Jesus has to do something, it's because the heart of the Father is compelling him to do so. Meaning there's something about this direction that I have to take that is being motivated by the heart of the Father that is sending me, dispatching me, making me go into places where others might most often avoid going he has to go to Samaria because the father's heart compels him to go to Samaria the father's heart compels him to go into the places and into the spaces where folks who are often disregarded and dismissed and demeaned he has to go to them and here's the extremely problematic part for us as disciples as people who apprentice the master as people who pattern our lives off the actions of Jesus, if Jesus has to go to Samaria, then we yep, have to go to Samaria. We have to go to the spaces and places where people that we might otherwise try to circumvent, avoid, neglect not want to pay attention to. We have to go and find them and intersect them at the wells. And here's the challenge. They're not going to be waiting for you with eager receptivity. They're not going to be like, oh, you're here finally. They're going to be like my friend. And, and you're going to go with good intentions. Intentions. Because you're, you're loving and you're caring and you want to go because you've got this good news message. But the burden of proof rests on your shoulders. Because here's the challenge. There is a whole convoluted and complicated story that precedes your arrival to them. Even though your intentions might be good, even though your desires might be good, the good news that you want to go with to them has not always been understood by them as good news. Okay? Now, before you run me out of this room, I do believe it's good news. In fact, I believe that the news that we have is the best news that you could possibly tell. It's the story of Jesus who arrives, God in flesh, shows up and says, here's the best news that you could ever hear. The kingdom of God, the space where God gets God's way, the space where the left outs are let in, where the broken, the battered, the bruised, the weary, and the wounded find wholeness and healing for their lives, where injustices are challenged and toppled, and where folks who find themselves in the ashy dustness of life are made beautiful. This kingdom has broken into the world on earth as in heaven, and it involves all of you. And that's really good news. Isn't that some good news? I'm a recipient of that good news. At 25. To that point, I, I had not been the recipient of that good news. But at 25 years old, coming out of a life marked by addiction and alcoholism and dysfunction and despair God met me in this extraordinary way with this promise of healing and wholeness and holiness and I found myself caught up in this really good news and then God dropped me in this church full of people who were good newsers who were committed to this beautiful good news and it became this compelling force and this compelling drive because I witnessed it in the lives of others who were being sent constantly into the Samarias and to the wells to share with others. But then I began to recognize something. That the good news that I believe so deeply in has not always been received and understood as good news by others. And, and let's, can we just, can we just be real for a minute? Sometimes that's our fault. Sometimes we've tried to wrap our good news about a new kingdom and a new king in old political banners. And we've made people try to fit our litmus tests for politics to gain entry, where we forget that, no, we have a Lord who is a Lord of all, regardless of your politics, and a kingdom that is not of this earth. That's our good news. But when we mess that up, we make it not so good news. Sometimes we make it not so good news when we, when we make it seem like, unintentionally times, intentionally at others, that it's really, really good news for some, just not so much for others. Because there are some who might just be outside the scope of its good news. That there may be because of life decisions or situations that they found themselves in or lifestyles that they're living, that maybe they are excluded from that good news and that that good news doesn't find its receptivity into their lives. And for some, they will say, well, if it's an arbitrary news, it's not that good. For others, it's not been received as good news because in our neglect for the needs of our neighbors, we've not demonstrated in compassion, in care, and kindness, and empathy, and generosity, and sacrifice, what they need to just get by. So that when we come talking about good news that we've not displayed in the actions of our lives, they think it's a hypocritical news. And can we, can we be honest that some of the people that we encounter with this good news have been wounded by toxic church cultures. There are some folks who they took a leap of faith and they showed up in a church believing it was the one place that was going to be safe enough for them to find hope and healing, only to be met by abuse and neglect. And they carry that story with them, and it has been anything but good news. And not to mention, there are just those whose lives have been marked by tragedy and trauma time and time again, where their lives have been beat down and broke down, and they've been victimized by situations in their lives, and they think that any talk of good news is too good to be true. So when you and I heed the call to follow the pattern of the disciple-maker Jesus, And to go where Jesus goes, to the Samarias, to the wells, we're not not meeting folks who are going. We're meeting folks who are, what's your intention? What's your agenda? Why now? And why me? Now, here's what I love about Jesus. (laughs) Because when you follow Jesus... And you begin to see Jesus at work in the story. You begin to see Jesus live under the weight of this suspicion in the story. And you begin to see in Jesus' life a kind of posture, a way of doing this work, that, that in the face of such suspicion offers the kind of presence that provides the space for the good news to grow. That's, my friend, Is what being a good newser is all about. A good newser knows down deep that the story that we believe in, the story we are committed to, is unquestionably good. But we also know it takes time to cultivate the soil of our connections, the seed of love and trust, the water with grace and compassion to fertilize with empathy and peace before it even blooms. We know it takes time. To be a good newser, it takes time. Now here. Can I, just, can I just point out some things that I think are just really cool that mark the story of Jesus in this? Just some things that, like, as we're thinking about, okay, if God does send me to Samaria and to the well, what do I need to do? Here's, here's some patterning your life off of Jesus. First thing is so obvious that when I say it, you're internally going to go, thank you, Captain Obvious. And then you're going to think, do you actually get paid to do this? That's how, that's how ridiculous this one is. So number one, ready for it? Jesus shows up. You're like, oh, thanks, that was helpful. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't think that that's as obvious as we make it seem. Because I'm not, a, I'm not convinced that as Christians we're all that great at showing up. Now, I think we show up here really well. And I think we show up amongst us who are like us really well. I'm not always convinced we're all that intentional about seeking out and searching for those who are not like us to go out amongst them and to find our place amongst them and forging friendships where they are in the real places that they live with the real stories that they're living out. I'm not convinced that we're all that intentional about showing up. And I am convinced that to pattern our lives off of Jesus, whose life is marked consistently in the scriptures with a pattern of showing up over and over and over again in the places you'd most least likely find him, so consistently that he demonstrates a compassion and love and care that you can't get away from. I think we have to show up. Which makes you ask the question where's my well? Where's the Samaria that God is sending me to? We'll come back to that. The second thing, I love this thing about this story. See, we think when Jesus shows up that he comes with all of the goods to give to someone else. But actually in this story, there's something beautiful that happens that if we're, if we're, if we're negligent, we're going to miss it. Jesus Jesus responds with, with reciprocity from the beginning. Now think about this. Jesus shows up, but this story begins with him needing something that she has. Don't you love this? Like, she comes with some good, like, hey, can I get a drink? Jesus has needs that she can meet. And here's the problem with, I think, what we do with Christianity at times, is that we presume that we have all the goods that others need from us. And so we actually steal their dignity and their humanity when we go to them by failing to acknowledge that there may be some gifts and graces that they, have, that they have to offer and bless my life with. See, I think we miss this. There's some folk out there who are wonderful human beings, and they have gifts and graces to offer that if you enter into a relationship of mutuality, they no longer become your project, they become your friend. And I think Jesus is forging friendship here. I think Jesus is restoring dignity. I think he's saying, I'm not going to refuse to demean you or diminish you in any way because you have something that you can give me as well. So, reciprocity. The third thing, I love this too. When Jesus begins to speak to this woman, as Christians, when we start talking about this word evangelism in some of our evangelism trainings, we tend to come to people. With all of our guns ablazing, like we've got this story that you've got to hear, and we've got to tell you, and we've got to get you to make a decision right now. And Jesus doesn't do that. He like hints at good news along the way. Like it's such a great conversation that Jesus has with this woman. She's like, he's like, can I get a drink? what are you doing asking me for a drink? And he's like, if you would have known who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him because he would have given you water that would have been a living water that would have left you no longer thirsty and having to come back to this well. And she's like, well, give me that water. Like he's hinting at the good news the whole time. But he's not forcing the conversation. See, here's how I think relationships work. When we live in authentic relationships with one another, I think what happens is we begin to forge the kind of trust where good news begins to bubble to the surface naturally instead of being a canned sales pitch that we have to offer them. And I think we find ways to integrate that good news into the story. Now, don't miss this next part, because I think this is the very part that, had it been done differently, could have sidelined the entire process. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that he is curious without condemnation. Now, let me, let me tell you how this works. Jesus, after having this conversation with this woman, looks at her and says, hey, go get your husband. Um, well, uh, funny you should say that. I'm not married. (laughs) He's like, yeah, I know, you've had five husbands and the one you're with is not your husband currently. Now, here's where I've done her harm unintentionally, but I've done it nonetheless. Because here's the deal. I've read this portion of the story through a 21st century lens and not a 1st century lens. If someone in the 21st century says, I've had five husbands and the man I'm with is not my husband, what words come to your mind? Do not say them, you were at church. But you thought them. That's not her story. She's not a twenty first century woman. She's a woman who would have grown up in a situation where she would have had very little say over her life. In fact, she would have probably been married off at twelve or thirteen years old to a man much older than him, or much older than her, and given the life expenses to see at the time, he would probably have been dead by thirty. Which would have then meant, because of the way that marriages work, she would have been shuffled off to his brother who may or may not have had any interest in her, and who had all of the power to issue her a divorce decree, which then could have landed her into another marriage that would have been abusive, and only after having proved that it was abusive could she have actually asked for divorce, which then would have tarnished her life, which probably would have landed in her another marriage that probably would not have gone well, probably someone who also passed away, thrusting her into another vulnerable situation, landing her into a a sixth relationship where the kids probably wouldn't bless the relationship because they thought she was only in it for his inheritance, and they wanted to protect and preserve that for their own inheritance, so they wouldn't bless the marriage of their dad. Oof. Oof. Did you know the people that you bump up alongside at the well have stories? That it's easy to judge if you don't know the backstory? When you go to the well, when you're sent to the well, when you go into Samaria, you have to take the time to be curious enough to ask the person, tell me your story. Yeah, their life may reflect some actions and behaviors that are dysfunctional and destructive, but you don't know the backstory that has led them to that place. And sometimes by taking time and paying attention, we learn how to build bridges with the good news of that story. And then I love what happens next in this story. If you follow, you've got you to go back and spend some time with it this week. Because she does what, is, what I have seen done hundreds of times in my office in counseling sessions. Like, you're, you're leaning in. You're getting close to some things. You're like, you're drawn near. Like, you're, you're playing around in the areas of vulnerability. Like, someone's just about to make a breakthrough. And then she's all like, well, let's talk theology. And she's like, what? And she's like, yep, yeah, we Samaritans, we worship here. You Jews worship over there. Who's right? And she's like, yeah, I ain't doing that. See, here's the deal. Jesus is not threatened or angered by her theological questions. Oh, Lord, that you would help us as your church understand that. Part of what sabotages our ability to build bridges at the wells is we get angry when people question our Jesus or our God or our theology or our beliefs, and we feel like we have to go to bat for them. We feel like we have to fight for them. Can I give you some freedom right here? Can I just give you some freedom? God has been doing what God's been doing for a really long time. And that person you're building bridges to is not the first person to question or doubt or call into question the God you believe in. And he's been defending himself quite well. He doesn't need you to fight for him. Can I just, can I just free you? Instead, lean in with curiosity. Instead, instead, see that as an opportunity to listen well enough, to speak your truths in that. And I love what Jesus does. He like reframes the entire conversation. He goes, by the way, there's a time coming when it won't be about which hill we worship on. It won't be about which ethnicity that we're a part of. It's going to be about who worships in spirit and in truth. And that can include you. I love how he reframes the entire conversation to draw her into the story instead of leaving her on the outside. And then... There's this beautiful moment in the story where there's absolute clarity. She said, there's a time coming where there's a chosen one who's going to come and reveal all this stuff. And then Jesus, I love this in the story. Did you know this is one of the first times in the scriptures that he does this for anybody? He says, that's me. I'm the one. Jesus reveals himself to her before he reveals himself fully, even to his disciples. Like, they're still wrestling with this stuff. And he says, yep, that's me. And you know what her response is? And she takes off running back to her village because now she's encountered a good news that is so good she can't keep it to herself. She goes back to the very village that probably would have alienated her that she was trying to avoid in the first place to tell them that she had just encountered this really amazing good news. Because when the good news meets your life, it becomes so beautifully compelling that you have to do something with it. I love this. Good newsing requires a posture and a presence that disarms through patience, building trust, extending empathy and demonstrating love. That's what, that's what this whole good newsing thing is about. So my wife and I, we arrived in the city. We arrived on a Monday, and you know, on Tuesday morning. in the morning, I was getting up and getting dressed. Boxes still all over the house. My wife said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to the well. She said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'm going to the coffee shop. And so I got up, got my stuff, and I walked down two blocks to the coffee shop that was in our neighborhood. And I sat down. And I sat down at this booth, and I I pulled out my books that I was reading, and I was was working remotely at the time, so books that I was reading, and I pulled out my Bible and my journal, and 6.30 in the morning, and people are starting to come in. By 9 o'clock in the morning, I had probably 15 people gather around me, and I was telling them about Jesus. No, that didn't happen. (laughs) I'm in Chicago. Nobody cared I was there. (laughs) I sat there for three and a half hours. Not a single person. So you know what I did the next day? I went back. You know what I did the day after that? I went back. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And I began to realize that even in a city of 2.7 million people are people of habit. And there's regulars, and they come in. And so I would sit in the same booth every single morning, and I would work on my Bible study, or I would, I would, I would work on my lessons that I was preparing for my students, or so I was working on grading for one of my classes, and I would sit there and work. And I remember the day that I realized I had arrived Guys, you guys are going to know. You're going to understand this. I got the nod. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? So one of the regulars comes in. He gets his coffee. I'm sitting over on the side. He turns, and he sees me, and he does this. I was like, <laughs> I'm in. Well, I was sitting there, and, and I, was, I was doing my work one day. And there's this young lady who kept coming in about the same time every morning, uh, mother of two kids. Now, I want to say that my life and her life were a little bit different. I'm an empty nester, so my mornings were nice and serene and quiet and I could read. Her she had two toddlers, so her life looked a lot less like that. But she would come into the coffee shop and she would wait for a coffee and she and I would see each other constantly. Like back and then we would like, you know, we would do the sort of awkward like or like like you know, all of those things. Well, she's super extroverted and eventually she just comes walking up to me and she says, who are you and what are you doing? <laughs> and I said, great question. Um, I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm a professor. And she says, well, what do you teach? Now, I typically in most settings don't lead out with pastoral ministry. Especially in Chicago, it doesn't like, win you any points. Um, so most of what I actually teach is the convergence of religion and culture. And so uh, I said, you know, I teach, the, I teach the convergence of religion and culture. And she goes, wow, I'm an atheist. Like, like line, like drew it, and I was like, "Wow, okay." Could you tell me more? And so we started having a little conversation. Well, I showed up the next day, and eventually, she and I became fast friends. We'd have these great, amazing conversations. She'd come in, she and the kids would sit down. Eventually, I got to meet her husband, who was also a fantastic human being. Then, she, then she and he got to meet my wife, and we all four of us just became great friends. We'd have all these great conversations. Um, she's a remarkable individual. She was, bef- she was from Australia, and she, fr- before she moved to the States, she was listed amongst the who's who in her area of Australia for the works that she was doing with people with disabilities. Like, she just, just great human beings. I learned a lot from her, learned a lot from her husband. And we'd have these great conversations, and she would ask me really deeply meaningful things, we'd talk about spirituality, and then and she would realize eventually I'm a pastor and all of those things. And then she would say things like, remember, I'm an atheist. Whoop. I'm like, got it. And then she texted me one day, and she was like, hey, you're going to have to talk to my son. I was like, okay. And she had this little little uh, five-year-old son. And she said, we were passing this big church. There was this beautiful Catholic church in our neighborhood. And he looks at me, and she says, mom, what's that, and what are they doing there? And I said to him, you're going to have to ask Uncle Jeff on that one. Um, so I said, great, I'll have a conversation with him. And so we'd have these great conversations. Well, then COVID hit, shut it down. And so I didn't have my coffee shop, but there was a group of us from the coffee shop. We started doing our corner coffee dates because in Chicago it was super intense. So we would like get our coffee and then we'd stand on corners and we'd all stand like feet apart from one another and we'd sit and drink our coffees and have our conversations. My wife and I being empty nesters had certain freedoms that others didn't have. So we'd go, do coffee, or we'd go do donut runs for the families who had kids and we'd drop donuts off on the front doorstep and we just kept the, r- the relationship alive. This was a year, a year. I'm an atheist. Right? So eventually in the summer, well after a, over a year of knowing them, she calls us and says, hey, would you guys be interested in coming to dinner? And I said, sure, come to your house for dinner. She said, we're doing charcuterie board. Do you know that's a thing? I realized what that is. My grandma and grandpa call that meat and cheese plate. And just so you know, a guy my size is never getting full off of meat and cheese plate. Just throwing that out there to help you with your hospitality. So we went and had charcuterie board. And uh, we're sitting around and we're having this great conversation. And finally she turns to me and she says, Jeff, how did, how did you and your wife meet? And so we started to tell our story. Now, part of our story is my wife and I were both alcoholics. And so we met each other through a really set of dysfunctional scenarios And then we made the decision that there's nothing more healthy than taking two alcoholic lives and, like, meshing them together, because that makes for a really healthy marriage. Um, And then we watched, for three years, our lives just come unraveled and broken, and so then we get to the point where both of us came to faith. And we can't tell our story without telling the part where we came to faith, so I said to her, and I was telling the story, and I finally got, and this is the point where we came to faith. And then I moved on because I'm in their home, and I wanted to be respectful of their space. And she had drawn the line, and I wanted to be respectful of that. And she said, Stop! And I'm like, Oh, it shot too far. And she's like, Tell me that. And I said, What? She said, I want to know how an atheistic alcoholic became a Jesus follower. And I went, okay. And for the next 30 minutes, she gifted me, blessed me with an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus. And it wasn't a canned sales pitch, and it wasn't something I came there to do. It was something that bubbled to the surface as a result of this relationship that we had forged over an entire year. And I sat there and I shared the the story of the gospel And she said these words, and I'll never forget. She sat back against the couch. She looked at her husband, and they had a couple words. And then she said to me, she said, Jeff, where I come from, we don't even have a framework to make sense of what you just told me. Like, there's no way of thinking even about this experience. And not now and not today, but maybe someday that'll be my story. And I just remember going, God, thank you. I don't have to control the outcome. I don't have to control what this looks like. I don't have to control the timeline. All I have to do is love people deeply by going to the same well over and over again and trusting that God, in friendship, forged opportunities occur. And we're still friends. She's moved back to Australia. My wife and I are no longer in Chicago. Thank goodness for Instagram. We stay connected through that. And I don't know where this leads, but all I know is she gave me the gift of reciprocity and allowing me to share something that was near and dear to my heart. Trusting that if you live out the life of a good newser, God opens up opportunities for you to share with others the good news you believe so heartily in. But you've got to go to the well. So my question is to you as I get ready to close. What's your well? Where's your Samaria? And to whom is God sending you? And will you go? Lord, I don't know what this looks like for each person. But I know that as disciples patterning our lives off of the master, we have to go where you go. Which means showing up in the lives of those who's who it's easier to circumvent than it is to show up in. And so, Lord, I'm just trusting and praying that, Lord, your people would hear your call, and, and they would begin to imagine their place that you're sending them. And maybe some of them are already there. Wherever they live, work, and play, maybe they're already there. You just need to send them more intentionally there as people who live lives that demonstrate and reflect the good news gospel story of Jesus Christ. And would you give them opportunities to share with sincerity, out of relationship, this good that is your story? In Jesus' name.